Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing part 16 of season two of Your Honor. Tonight's episode was written by Dwayne Darian Jones and was directed by Peter Sollett. Dwayne previously wrote part five back in season one, and this is the fourth time Peter has been back to direct this season. He previously directed parts 11, 12, and last week's part 15. We've got a crew, an experienced crew here handling tonight's episode. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with all your favorite fans. So many good ones in this group. I love it. I love that this group has like been around from the beginning, and that's amazing. These people are dedicated watchers. Coming out every episode with their comments and their theories and their reactions. It's a lot of fun love to watch it. it. A lot of fun to watch it rolling through. So uh, <laughs> just a reminder, if this is the first time you're listening to us, which is odd for you to be joining us here hey but we welcome all fans <laughs> first timers and repeat offenders we have assumed that you have watched this episode so we're going to say things that are spoilery uh if you don't want to be spoiled please pause go watch the episode and then come back and listen to us because we deep dive into it but we don't do a step-by-step recap though either we kind of yeah. discuss it by character and themes and stuff like that we don't go first scene second scene hey you know who i missed this week who'd you miss I miss Charlie. Mm, hey, Charlie's in timeout, I think, in the little bit cooling off period. <laughs> That's exactly right. A little timeout for him. But who I was super happy to see back was Senator Grandma, Elizabeth. I love her. Senator Grandma had her best episode of the series. This is by far the most they've given Margot Martindale to do in one episode. And it was great because she works so well with uh, Brian Cranston, these two characters work best when they're on the same side. I think this episode really proved that. They have great chemistry. It was hands down the best part of the episode, to say nothing of the fact that what they were doing was uncovering something that has nagged at both of us and a lot of fans, I think, since season one. Is it whether Margot Martindale is related to Wink Martindale? Because I looked it up and I can't find any connection. You imagine with Martindale, they have to be. They have to be at least cousins on the Martindale family tree, if nothing else. There's only a five-year age difference between these two, which, as his mother-in-law, goes to, I think, the fact that he must have been a bit older than Robin, 
right? Which, I think so, yeah. Which maybe plays into a, a, an intrinsic problem in their marriage, which we get into a little bit in this episode. We certainly do. I did not expect that glimpse into their marriage or that Robin was so unhappy and Senator Grandma really just felt like there was nothing that Michael could have done to make her happy. I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is this is a lot we're getting about their relationship. She was only there for Adam. Yikes. That hurt my feelings for Michael when she said that. She She's always been brutally honest with him. And I like that Michael said he stuck up for himself a bit. And he said, you know, listen, I wasn't the worst husband. She didn't have to, but she took the time to correct him and say, no, it was it was Robin's fault. It was Robin didn't love you enough. And I had warned her she didn't love you enough to get married, which is hurtful in an entirely different way. Like she should have never married you because she never loved you enough. Aye, aye, aye. This conversation is not is not as soothing as you think, Senator Grandma. <laughs> I mean, this is like a, a definition of a lose-lose conversation, you know? So, I, I mean, if she gets a supporting actress nod, Margot, for this work, for this work she's doing on the show, it's going to be for this episode. And I think it's going to be for when she's in Yaya's and she's trying to convince KJ to start talking to them. And she just loses it. And, and she kind of explodes that she's lost both of her babies. She has no idea why. You're really feeling her here, right? The empathy is flowing hard because I think in that situation, all of us would feel like she feels the powerlessness of it. It's one thing to lose your daughter and your grandchild. It's another thing to lose them and have no idea why. Yes, I agree. Let's start at the very beginning, though, because the, their scenes together pick up when she gets him from jail. It seems like she waits a beat. There's a really funny scene where he's responding to Olivia's text, who we don't see this week. We only see her via some more desperate texts. But he gives a classic duck you autocorrect. I know. I love it. I love it. Because literally, I, I that issue happens <laughs> to me at least once a day. My, I, I say fuck you a lot, and I type it apparently a lot, and, and it constantly... What? We never talk about ducks. Ever. Ever. And yet it always assumes that's what we're talking about. Fun fact, my phone has started autocorrecting when I write the word some, S-O-M-E. My phone autocorrects to sone, S-O-N-E. That's not a fucking word. I, why is my phone? They're like, no, I think he meant sewn, not some. No. Right. I'm no Bring phone. me sewn kitchen. Some kitchen. Bring me. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I think I there might have been two autocorrects. Oh, no. <laughs> I think there were two autocorrects. My sense. brain autocorrected me from chicken to kitchen. <laughs> Oh my God, it's in my head. Oh no, uh, now we, we need should to get off podcast. this subject we, right we away. We need to pause the podcast because now I need some chicken. Now no, I need, need now some, I, now I, you sewn, need some kitchen. I need sewn kitchen. <laughs> That's so funny. You guys, this is like our ninth hour of recording in the last two days. <laughs> it is. We're trying to catch all up for you guys, and it is making us a little punchy. So I apologize if uh, if the tone of the podcast goes up and down quite a bit. I know we're dealing with serious things here in this episode, <laughs> but we're also a little punchy. So a little bit, a little bit. So but we're here. I want to clarify, so in case people aren't following it or putting it together, because they said all the information to Robin's murder in this episode. But I want to I want to kind of put it together in a coherent A to B to C, just so it's out there and, and we can just point to it. I love that you're going to do that because I do think that they doled out the information in these little chunks. And it would have been easy to kind of be like, whoa, whoa, wait, who did what to the who now where? So I'm going to rewind you to last week's episode where Nancy Costello is called into the interrogation room or the behind the double glass behind the interrogation room. And there was a guy there who had been arrested. The 
assistant cop who's talking to Nancy says he's got a wild, a wild list of priors. He was arrested tonight in the lower ninth. He had a story to tell. And that's all we know. Turns out in this episode, we learn that guy, that, that perp who got arrested for Grand Theft Auto, used to be a source for Kenneth, who was a newspaper reporter. Kenneth was the person Robin was having an affair with, which credit to us, we called way back in season one that the affair was going to be between her and the reporter she was working with on, on her stories. My guess is this is the role Blair Underwood was supposed to have played in season one. Yeah, a lot of people are going to probably forget about that, that he had been cast for a role. Announced in all the trades, yeah. Right, it was widely advertised and and we were trying to guess who he might be playing. And we thought maybe it was going to be Robin's love interest. This was perfect. When when I saw Kenneth, I was like, okay, yeah, this probably is the role that, that Blair was going to play. Similar look, similar build, similar mm -hmm. kind of stature. I could easily see Blair playing And this age role. and everything. Right. He really fits all of the bills. Okay. So where was it? So you have the perp who is a source for Kenneth. Kenneth is the guy Robin was having an affair with. Kenneth is the guy that Michael thinks Robin was speaking to in whispered tones the night she was killed uh, that she left the house right after having a phone conversation with, which we learned this episode, Michael was eavesdropping on, on her. I heard her whispering into the phone. Turns out it was not Kenneth she was on the phone with. But Kenneth suspects that it was their source on a story that the two of them were working on about cops killing gang members. The source name was KJ. Kenneth assumes that when he hears Michael say that she was on the phone with someone, she was probably on the phone with KJ because he worked at Yaya's. He was getting ready to talk to them about this case, that the, about the story that they were looking into about police brutality, but the police, police brutality turned into actually police acting as for higher killers doing ex execution style murders on high level ranking gang members. Now, when you heard the initials KJ within this series, that it was a very loaded set of initials because, I mean, immediately I think Kofi Jones and my fanfic brain whirled into this entire thing of like, oh, my God, another tragedy where Kofi would have all the answers to what happened to Robin. And yet he's the one who gets killed in this senseless mess trying to get rid of the car. I thought, oh, my God, this is just going to be one of those awful situations where you're never going to get the answers now because lo and behold, Kofi Jones would have held all the answers for you. So were you surprised or shocked or anything that they would use those initials? Do you think it was a misdirect? Were we supposed to think, oh, my God, it must be Kofi Jones? I'm sorry, I, I didn't even think of that. It makes a lot no of sense. I, I assumed it was just something junior like Kevin Jr., Oh, my God. I went directly to Kofi Jones because why would they bother with the initials? Why would they? I like I was just like, oh, my God, this is going to be just another gut punch. You I know, definitely that, makes a nice misdirect. Gone. It makes a nice misdirect. And of course, he was in a gang. So maybe he would have information. Yeah. No, I it didn't even. I'm adult. I didn't even come up with that. So, <laughs> OK, so let's follow the trail. So we have lower ninth perp to Kenneth, the reporter, Kenneth, the reporter, to KJ, who he and Robin were working with to blow the lid off of these cop gangland style murders. KJ's getting cold feet. 
So Robin goes to meet him at Yaya's. KJ is not the one who called Robin there because he wouldn't have been there, right? He says to Michael, he didn't want to talk to her anymore. He got cold feet. He didn't want to, to bring the heat down on himself. So someone else that's not Kenneth, that's not KJ, someone else calls Robin to Yaya's where Detective Walter Beckwith, at least according to KJ, who would know him, he had a sexual relationship uh, in exchange for drugs with him. So he says he's positive. He could tell him even with wearing a mask and gloves, he could tell it was him. Walter Beckwith, a police detective, follows Robin into Yaya's and kills her immediately. Never even sees it coming. She never even sees it coming. So you have Lower Ninth Perp to Kenneth to KJ to Detective Walter Beckwith, a dirty cop who had been bragging to KJ his lover or at least drug sex weird relationship, control power relationship brags to him that he is doing execution style murder for hire kind of crimes in addition to a host of other dirty cop things now we know how how robin was murdered we learn it all in this episode if you just put all the pieces together that's the chain that leads robin to yaya's here's the question here's the question we don't have an answer to and i have a theory i'm curious what your theory is i'm curious what listeners theories are presumably we're going to learn about it either in, in parts 17 18 19 or 20 who lord robin there someone it wasn't kj she was whispering to on the phone that led her to leave the house on october 9th it wasn't kenneth her lover that was whispering to her on the phone that led her to leave the house on october 9th and got her killed at nine o'clock at night so who was it has to be someone she knows because why else would she be whispering and taking a call like that if she didn't know the person presumably someone she trusted or at least someone she thought was a source Right. Someone someone that she didn't probably think would lead to her death. Someone lured her there. Someone put Robin at Yaya's so that Beckwith could execute her like he had been doing to the gang members. Well, we have very few people to really point at. I mean, it could be someone like, do you think it's some like a person we consider a good guy or someone we consider a bad guy? I think if it's someone that we know in this series, the only one that makes sense is it's that it's Charlie. So I'm thinking Charlie... I mean, it could have been Rudy. Could have been Rudy. Could have been Rudy, though. Could have been Nancy. Could be Nancy. Nan Nancy. It would be a mess if it was Nancy, but right. I mean. And the longest con ever portrayed on television. Yes. <laughs> but here's 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 what my theory. Charlie would be a, would be a twist, like a knife in the side. But huh? would it, though? She's cheating on Michael. Right. Charlie, Michael's greatest friend owes his life to michael owes his campaign and he's he's preparing to run for mayor michael's the one who gets him first signed up he finds out that his wife is cheating on him plus investigating corruption in the police force in which charlie has a finger because we know rudy deals with desire but rudy is also a cop on charlie's payroll also so rudy is working for two different two different parties as a corrupt cop. So here are the cops that we know. There's Rudy Cunningham. He is the go-between and liaison for the Desire Gang, the one who shoots Eugene at the end of this episode. But he's the one who gets Kofi to go steal the car because Charlie asked him to do so. So Rudy Cunningham is the cop who is in the pocket of Charlie and of Desire. Then you have uh, Lieutenant Cusack, who is the Baxter's dirty cop that they have on their payroll. Now we have this Detective Walter Beckwith, who I looked through every single credited character in the imdb never been a beckwith 
Thank God you said that because I was sitting here thinking there's no way that I've watched this much of this series and I can't remember this guy's name. Like when they said it, I got to tell you, as an audience member, it like thud to the ground for me when they were like, I know who shot her, Walter Beckwith. It was like you could have said Mr. Peanut. Like and I was like, Michael repeats, Michael repeats Beckwith. Like he knows who he is. But Michael was a judge for a long time. He would know who Beckwith is. He would know that name. But we don't. So I, I rolled back all the times Nancy talked about other cops. I rolled it back to the episode nine or 10 of season one where Charlie makes a deal or tries to bribe Nancy with a deal that when he gets elected mayor, he'll put her in charge of the police so she can and throw all of the resources to clean up the dirty cops. And he names a bunch of dirty cops like Cusack and he names a couple other cops, but none of the cops he names is named Beckwith. Well, so what do you think about that? Like, do you think that's like kind of a little bit crappy to introduce a brand new name into this group when it's kind of one of those situations where there's a small cast of characters here so it's like oh my god here's the biggest question in the world who killed her and it's like clue right you have all these characters and then they were like it was you know joe blow and you're like wait but i have a cast of characters we already know why are you what what are you doing bringing up this outside name now I agree with you. Here, Here's two ways I can go with that. One, because I thought about that. Why introduce a character when we have a cast of characters? Well, and is it kind of cheap as a murder mystery kind of situation to name a character that's never been introduced as the as the perpetrator? So here are my two theories. One, the reason we've never heard of them is because it's it's solely wrapped up in this robin murder mystery which we have not learned about until now we know about rudy because he comes up so much between charlie and desire we know about cusack so much because it comes up in the course of baxter family business we wouldn't know Beckwith necessarily because he would be isolated to these high-level gang murders, which we haven't seen in the last year, right? This was something that was happening two years ago. Before before we were introduced to this world, this was something happening with Beckwith. Maybe Beckwith's not even on the police force anymore. That's maybe one reason why. He was solely, maybe after this Robin murder, maybe he was, he was taken out himself or removed from the force somehow, right? So he is solely, my point being that maybe it's, we haven't, no, we don't know the name because he's solely wrapped up in the Robin Desiato murder. I don't like it. Or it's an alias. It's not his real name. It's the name he was using for KJ, which maybe makes sense, right? He's trading drugs for sex and information with this guy who works at Yaya's. Maybe he doesn't use his real name. And so maybe Beckwith is the alias for one of the cops that we do know, which would then be Rudy. Maybe Beckwith is an alias for Rudy that he used for purposes of this. I guess. I guess I could go with that one more than more than the than the idea of just, you know, he was wrapped up only in Robin's storyline, so that's why we never met him. We spent too much time in the police precinct. We spent too much time with individual cops, whether it was like even I'm thinking of like the cop who is like who was like dealing with Kofi that night and he traded the baseball in order to get out of there. And we've met so many cops that I think it's a little cheesy to say, Oh, it was just one we hadn't met but turns out to be the key to the catalyst of the entire story. What? Come Unless on. he's not actively on the police force again, right? I mean, it's two years now. And if, if, if you're in the business of tying up your loose ends, and if it is Charlie, Charlie is not necessarily going to allow the guy who killed someone so close to him, a lot, you know, be out there. 
Do you think Charlie would really would do you really think he he would want to orchestrate Robin's death because of an affair? It's the only one that really makes sense of the character. So maybe this is another situation. Maybe the person pulling the strings and ordering the hit is not is not a character we know yet. If it's someone that we know, and this feels like it has to be someone that we know, uh, whoever is whoever is the puppet master here, it feels like someone we have to know because that is almost too egregious to introduce an unknown third party as the one ordering the ultimate hit on Robin because also think that's a significant power call, right? That the call to murder a photographer for a newspaper to bury a story, it has to come from a very high level place. And there's only so many high level people that we have on the show. Now, here's my theory about why it would be Nancy. And I don't think it's Nancy because she's in private has been too much. I sacrificed too much looking for Robin's murderer. Like it, it's just too consistent in her story about pursuing the murder. I mean, I agree. It would come off incredibly hypocritical, crazy, you know, two-faced, whatever. Like the whole thing, like you said, the longest con, because there's nothing that that has pointed to her being, you know, practically schizophrenic. You know, like she seems like she was a really straightforward character who would 100% be on the right side of the law. So, I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but maybe it's sillier for us to think that there would be a character that would be so uncorrupt as nancy here here's something and it comes up in this episode that makes me think well that's odd that's odd behavior for nancy to have michael calls her and says i know who actually murdered robin and i know why you haven't been able to solve it it's one of your own it's a cop nancy's reaction is can you come to the station to talk about it i thought that was odd too it's fucking weird he just said a cop at the station is the one who killed this woman who you have devoted the last two years of your life trying to find so you want to bring him to the station that makes no sense to me i agree it 100 felt like he should she should either come over there or they should meet in some neutral place she came or something to their but house to, to to fingerprint them she came, she fingerprinted them at their dining room table versus making them come to the station. She's going to have Michael come to the station to talk about a dirty cop who killed Robin. Come on. That makes but no sense. But she also made him walk through the whole station with the handcuffs on. Let's talk about that. I have a theory about that, too. This entire bringing him in and where were you on the night of your wife's murder? And I know you're with Kenneth and all of this and you were lying to us. This is all bullshit. She doesn't have a shred of actual evidence implicating Michael for Robin's murder. And I don't think there's a shred of, of, I think there's only the tiniest infinitesimal part of her that thinks Michael actually did it. Everything Nancy's doing here is because of Livia. Everything she's doing here is a, is a pressure play to get him to play ball. That's why Olivia's sending him such frantic texts. That's why he has the text that he replies, duck you to at the beginning of the episode. Cause she knows that he's been now out of jail because right as soon as he gets in the car with Senator Grandma and out of Nancy's custody, Olivia is sending a text saying, so we play in ball or going back to prison. He says, duck you. And then the only other time we see is all for frantic. You gotta check in with me, Michael. Because think back when she said, when Nancy and Olivia have their meeting in the middle of the episode last week this is how we get to him not 
he's the murderer of Robin. This is how we get to him, which goes back to the firing range conversation where Olivia's trying to get Nancy to get Michael to play ball. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all bullshit. Nancy isn't is doing this purely to get Michael to cooperate with Olivia. I'm positive of it. I mean, that's fair. And it's very it's not unusual to throw accusations to try to get him, you know, to try to get someone worried and feel like they need to suddenly appease whomever. Right. This idea of it's not just going back to prison for this other thing. Now it's now it's maybe you're looking at prison for murdering your wife. But Michael knows he didn't do it. Michael knows and he calls her on it. He says, you haven't booked me. You ain't got shit. What are we doing here? You now yeah. you think I'm the kind it took you two years to come up with the jealous husband theory, which made me laugh. I like it when Michael is defiant. Michael is best when Michael is being defiant. Uh, because I he's got a little sass mouth in him and I really like it when he shows it. But Nancy <laughs> is acting like a puppy here, which bad so, you know, shame on you, Nancy. Like you stood up to Olivia, you called her on her bullshit, and now you're you're playing ball with her, you're acting as her puppet. This is what we talked about last week with Olivia. She keeps stepping in shit and coming out looking like a rose. She's got Charlie she's got nancy she's got all these people doing her dirty work for her instead of letting her stand on her own two feet to falling forward do you have another reason for the nancy for all of the nanciness in this episode there's only two scenes with her but they're they're significant insofar as it's weird behavior you know she tries to explain it away by saying that her opinion of him has evolved over the course of the case and the investigation and so she tries to kind of explain away a little bit about her changing behavior and her attitude towards him and the things that she chooses to do like marching him through with the handcuffs on she's kind of twisted up in her own mess you know like i think she's one of those people who she felt like she should have solved that case and she's so angry and has such like disdain for michael it's like she can't see the forest through the trees you know like she's she's too busy being pissed at him to really be focused on solving the case in a way that's very logical like we said why would he come to the station to tell you about a dirty cop like that's a bad move but it's like she's so hell-bent on being pissed at him she's like not even making like common sense moves and that's just not her that's what bugs me she was a very grounded character that seemed like she she's the one who said like is that blood on that rag you know like she like she had paid attention throughout every other part of this and was just one of those like very reasonable level-headed type she asked him very normal questions and then like her behavior now like when with the with the handcuffs and then she goes oops like that's not nancy nancy doesn't say oops <laughs> you know like i don't know so it's it's rough because this doesn't seem like the character that we've known and have gotten accustomed to like the role she plays and how she comes into the group the dynamic now she feels way more suspicious well, if she does feel more suspicious after the the let's come come to the station and talk about the dirty cop it feels very suspicious to me but like the oops thing and all that and, and the, the scenes we've seen with her it seems almost petty of her in her obsession with Michael instead of going out and doing other things. That's what I mean. She's stuck in the personal side. Like, she's forgotten how to act normal because she's so pissed at him. It's almost like in the year that he was put away, the fact that she couldn't prosecute him and and her big frowning moment because Olivia came in and, and had that whole thing squashed, right? Think back to the judges' chambers where, you know, Olivia steps all over Nancy and and Nancy's like, uh, you know, we we don't put people in prison for, you know, doing bad things anymore. It's almost like she has like fallen apart. Like she has lost herself. She has lost her her way as a 
as a straightforward hard-nosed cop and she's become just mired in petty obsessions and and i'm not saying petty insofar as what michael did was petty i'm saying petty insofar as she no longer sees the bigger picture and maybe is neglecting other aspects of it she knows the cops are dirty in the police force right she has that conversation with charlie she watches cusack talking to johnny zander the lawyer last season she sees cusack talking to jimmy baxter last season she knows Rudy and Charlie in cahoots, right? She's at the she's at the rally in the first episode where Charlie is announcing that the city is safe and Eugene is dead and uh, Rudy is right next to him. Remember, we talked about how Nancy was in a crowd with her arms crossed, peering at them. She knows all these dirty cops around there, so she never it never occurred to her that a dirty cop was involved. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe why? What if she doesn't know about the gangland style murder executions nancy also you're suspicious of all these dirty cops how do you not know after all of the gang war listen to kj tell the story about the gang war actually let's play the clip because i have it so there's no reason not to play it so let's uh, let's let's visit with kj for a little bit he tells me that he just shot a guy execution style murder for hire not long after that i told him i was done i was trying to get clean didn't want to see him anymore I get a call from this woman named Robin. She says she's working on a story about police brutality and asked if I wanted to talk. I should have just kept my fucking mouth shut, but I thought my life was over anyway. I told her I knew that cops were killing people and that I'd talk to her when I got out. You must have realized I was getting cold feet because one night I look up and there she is. Wait, she didn't call you the night she came here? Before she came here? No, because I wouldn't have been here if she did. She walked in, and he was right behind her. She barely makes it to the register when he opens fire. She never saw it coming. So you, you, you saw this? I saw a mask and gloves, but I knew it was him. You sure? I'm positive. KJ, tell us who he is. Detective Walter Beckwith. Now, before that clip gets going, he talks about how there was a gang war and there were attempts to take down high-ranking members, but it never got more than just corner boys being taken down by the rival gangs. But all of a sudden, now someone came in and was doing clean execution-style hits of lieutenants and other high-ranking gang members. That's where the cops coming into the story starts to take hold. Nancy is is a is a good cop. She's a, a cop on the ball. She's not paying attention to all of a sudden high-level members of gangs are being executed in clean military-style killings. She's not aware that Robin's working on this story. Robin, who she must be obsessed with, and uh, given how much she's devoted of her life in the last two years, doesn't have any inkling she's working on this police brutality story. Nancy, a cop that Michael and Robin would have trusted, given the loyalty, uh, given how few good cops apparently seem to be in the NOPD. It's all very weird to me. It's all very weird to me. And maybe it's plot holes. Maybe it's maybe Nancy is suspicious. Maybe Nancy has her own uh, skeletons in her closet that we don't know about. But KJ seems like a straight shooter. His recollection seems to be very unclouded and very believable to me. Yeah, I trust him. He had nothing to gain by telling them anything. And that for me is the key. Like, you know, he really was worried, you know, when there was that moment when he was telling them the story and that, that bottle 
like drops behind them in the hallway mm-hmm. in the alleyway and they like turn and everything and you know you you really that really sent like a shiver like man he could really be in a lot of trouble by I was expecting a bullet to ring out the entire time I was expecting I really did too some bullet to come flying over Senator Grandma and Michael's head and hit him like right in the head or chest or something absolutely absolutely and it would have made sense because he's already fulfilled his part for the show like he could have said what he needed to say and then be dead one second later and it would have been like well he was done anyway he said everything he needed to uh let's go back to kenneth for a second because there, there's a couple things that come up in the kenneth interview in the swamp that i think are worthy of talking about one is a basic question that i had for you if kenneth is so scared that such that he now lives in the middle of nowhere in the swamp why is he still living in louisiana at all he's a newspaper man there are newspapers all over the country why not move to san francisco or alaska or somewhere else <laughs> why is he why did he why is he living out of in fear in the swamps of louisiana I mean, I have no idea why he chooses to do what he does. But I mean, generally speaking, I mean, moving's not cheap. And I'll, plenty of people, Over you know. fear of your life, though? I mean, no, I understand what you're saying. You, like, And you're definitely going to come down on, like, he should definitely move. But you have to give some explanation as to why he doesn't, right? So I'm going to say he is a newspaper guy. He does have a job. Uh, he is maybe not scared enough to move away, but just scared enough to stay on the outskirts and just sort of keep an eye on things and want to feel like he's got, like, a really wide berth around him like he can see people coming from far away and he comes out with his gun you know so that's the best explanation i can give is that he wasn't he's not actually completely at that level scared but he is gonna live his whole life extremely cautiously well maybe and i'm gonna tack on to that maybe a part of him he didn't leave because part of him wants to see the resolution of robin's murder right all he knows all he knows is that presumably she got too close to the story and a cop killed her because of it. So as a newspaper man, and also remember, listen to how he's talking. Like, I thought, I thought when she came to me, she was finally ready to leave you. Like he's, he's talking like Robin and him were going to go off and and live the happy life and she wasn't and she wanted to stay with you this definitely sounds like he was in love with her so you know 100 percent, i could see why why he might want to stick around but i but i don't know if it's to solve her murder that doesn't exactly click with me because he he didn't indicate to me that he was like you know gonna try to figure this out for right. himself there was no conspiracy wall where he had strings up of who no and kind what. of quite the opposite he actually had put up like you know his heisman arm and had like backed off of everything and stayed away from everything i think he loved her i think this is another version of grief maybe that you know we talked about in the show the theme of grief and how people deal with loss like let's say look for fia she decided to name the baby rocco adam right that's how she's dealing with her grief well for for kenneth he decides to stay in the town where something bad happened even though he probably should leave but maybe for the same types of reasons where he's just this is the way he's grieving he's sticking around and seeing what happens next uh kenneth raises a question in this discussion with senator grandma and michael that i think is definitely an episode theme i think maybe becomes a show theme at this point asks who can you trust and and kenneth is asking that who can you trust but now given the story and how it all unfolded and now what now that we know what we know and michael and elizabeth know what they know and about how robin was murdered the question is who can you trust if cops are killing high ranking gang member execution style they're doing that on someone's orders so just for the board right this is one of the this now becomes a fundamental question that we have to know about the show who is giving those orders someone is giving those orders who is giving those orders this has to be a question 
has to get resolved. Now that they've raised it, now that they have gone this far down in revealing Robin's murder, something we have asked them to do, and they did it, I think, pretty convincingly in one episode. They didn't give the final answer. They gave 90% of the story, but we need now the final piece. So let me ask you this. Do you think that the question that they threw out there about is knowing what happened does it make you feel better? I thought that was a really good question to raise because KJ really tries to say like, hey, this isn't going to make you feel better. I know the answers and it's not going to make you feel better. I liked that they raised this question as an audience. It, it, I think it was directed at us. You know, you're a season and a half in. You all wanted to know what happened to her. Do you feel better? Do you, mm-hmm. is this, was this good for you to know? And I would say that most of us are kind of like, huh, okay. Well, so that's how she died. All right. Well, okay. Like, do I feel better? Like, do I feel like, oh man, you know, we can really get some, you know, closure here. Like, I don't know that I do feel like I got a lot of closure. No, I think that I think they gave a classic television answer to question with an even larger question. All right. We know how Robin died. We know why she died. We know why Robin is dead now. We know why she was at Yaya's. We know why she got murdered at Yaya's now. But who gave that order? That is an important piece of information because if it is someone we know in this show, it affects other things than just Robin's murder. That's why it's important to find out now. It's not isolated because if it's someone is giving the orders to the dirty cops to do this and by necessity, given that Robin was murdered execution style by Walter Beckwith, as KJ tells us, that was also given on someone's orders. So if we make the safe assumption that it's someone in the show that we know gave that order, well, that character in the show is connected into other aspects of the show. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to throw one out for you. What if it's Monique? What if it's Big Mo who gave the order? Does that like bring it round for full circle back around? How does that make sense unless Big Mo was because they said there's these gang wars where they're putting out hits on one another. We know that certain cops are, you know, go with each one. Like you just said, you said there was a Baxter cop. There's a Charlie cop. Why couldn't Walter be Big Mo cop? Why can't he be a Big Mo cop? I'm just saying it's like try, try to bring possible. in all of our characters. We have to bring them all in. We can't just yeah. say Charlie or Nancy are our only choices. Yeah. Big Mo certainly has the authority to put a hit out on somebody. And she's, you know, maybe having this Robin woman hanging around the lower ninth, which is Big Mo territory, not anybody else's. Maybe that was just a little bit too much heat, a little bit too much spotlight on that area that she didn't like. What did you think of the fact that Clarice, who's worked the woman working the counter in Yaya's, when he when Michael says, I was a judge, she looks at him. She really looks at him and says, you're the husband. This These events happened two years ago. And Clarice, as far as we know, was not actively involved in them other than being a person who works at Yaya's. That impressed me at of how much of an impact this actually made on that store. The genesis of the name of our podcast, Tales from Yaya's. This is it's that store is why we call this podcast Tales from Yaya's. And I'm happy two years later it's coming around and making sense uh to everyone. But I, I, I was taken by how much of an impact this event must have had on the people there for this to happen. And it, it makes sense. A woman was murdered in cold blood inside that store. Like, a dead woman was in Yaya's, shot dead. I have to imagine. It could have been Clarice who was having to clean up blood and stuff off of things, you know? So, yeah, I can imagine it. And you'd want to uh, know what the backstory was on that. And once you did, you'd be like, ooh. <laughs> you know, having these two people walk in here like this. Plus, I'm sure... You 
we know that Michael's face was on the front of the newspaper and stuff like that. So people de- definitely knew who he was. Let's circle back to the question that you raised, which I think is a great question. Does it help to know the answers? KJ certainly didn't think it was. And at the end of the episode, neither does, neither does Senator Grandma. Let's take a listen. You were right. It doesn't help. She's dead. She shouldn't be. I already knew that. I just... I just didn't want her to think I didn't care enough to ask the questions. Elizabeth, I should have been there for you after she died. You were dealing with your own loss. Yeah, but I, I had Adam and I, I just, I, I just didn't appreciate that. He was your connection to the child you lost. There's nothing quite like the wonder of a grandchild. No, there's not. Elizabeth, I... I was going to wait to tell you. I don't know when. But... uh, Fia Baxter has a baby, a little boy. You are a great-grandmother. A lot there. What do you think of the idea of, I didn't want Robin, who's dead at this point, I didn't want Robin to think I didn't care enough to ask the question? Oh, it kind of broke my heart because it's one of those things where you're like putting all these attributes to someone who's not there. You're you're acting as if Robin still thinks like a, you know, a live person in thinking those types of thoughts of like, oh, well, I need to, I need to do this because I wouldn't want to hurt her feelings and those types of things. It's, it's all very like where you haven't accepted the person has died because they don't, you're not hurting their feelings, you know, like that's not a thing. They're not here. But as a mom, as a parent, I struggled with this question, you know, especially if, you know, your child dies in a very unexpected, very like no answers kind of situation and violence something to have some closure on that and and do you want to know the details lots of times like on tv or like you know on the news they'll they'll give some gory detail about you know some some case and and i think to myself like you know what would i do I need to know that as as the parent? Would I want to know that? Would my own mind being so horrible to myself sometimes, would they make up a worse story? So maybe better for me to know the real story than for me to, to try to sit around and think about all the horrible things that it could have been. But I think that the loss and the grief and everything... It is what it is, and it is and it is not healed in any way by knowing all the details. That's what Senator Grandma teaches us here, I think. I don't know that that's true for everyone. It, it depends on you. What level of closure I think you need and what level of details you can handle. Some people, like, need to know the dirty details in order to be like, okay, now I know. This type of question comes up a lot with, um, like, someone who's cheated. That's like a, I, the the concept of, like, I want to know every detail of what that person did to you. Like, I know me and you have seen that on different shows before where the person will be like, tell me where they touched you and tell me what they did and all that kind of stuff. Because somehow 
there's something there that, you know, allows them to supposedly let it go better or something. I don't think I'm that type of person who, who would want to know all the details. I don't think that would make me feel better. How about you? I mean, what, are you somebody who would want to know all those details? I need to know every fucking detail. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know every detail. And you know what? She's right. It doesn't, it doesn't, knowing the details now, it doesn't bring Robin back. It doesn't help in, in the closure or the grief of her being gone. So then why do you need to know the details? Because it, it, do it, it helps in the why. It doesn't bring her back. It doesn't make it any more sad, but it does answer why. It does give it does give closure to the question of why is she dead? And maybe it's not a good question, but she was doing she was doing important work. She was trying to uncover and unravel a dangerous situation going on in this city. And that is heroic. I would want to know that. I, I, I need to know why. I need to know why things happen. I live in the details. I need to know every fucking one of them always. It drives me crazy if I don't. Would you be the same about like, so that's like a death situation. Are you the same as someone like a cheating situation? You would also want to know all the details? Uh, yeah, I think I would because because it all goes towards motivation because I have I have a very good detailed expansive imagination if you don't give me the details i'm gonna fill in the blanks and it's gonna take the worst possible form. okay so you're doing what i would do is like i wear my my fanfic brain and it always would be way worse always. way worse it would be the it really very was. it would be the worst i would i would it would always take the worst form to hurt me the worst so right. i need the details so that i can avoid that because then i plug the details in i if i know the details i don't still then uh, come up with the worst scenario i use the details given so it's fair I mean, Senator Grandma says it does not help her to know, but at least I feel like she has less questions and, and somehow that's got to make you sleep a little bit better at night, even if the answers aren't what I mean, there was no good answer. Right. There was no like right murderer. Like, you know, there's, there was nobody that they could have said that was like, oh, OK, yeah, that's fine now. You know, like, it would still be awful no matter what. Let's focus on the second half of the clip where Michael, one, apologizes to Elizabeth for not being there enough for her and ignoring her aspect of grief, that he was so wrapped up in losing Robin, but then losing Adam that he, you know, think back to the first episode or actually the second episode where she says, after a year of radio silence, you know, I didn't think I was going to hear from you again. That That essentially means that, Adam is killed, Michael is arrested by Nancy, and he never speaks to Elizabeth about it. So she's left to learn about it, not from him. She probably learns about it either from the cops or from the newspaper. She's never given any kind of reason why. They're, like, her grief is just a gaping wound and that he never considered. I like that he does this. This seems like an important mea culpa for him to do. And I think also maybe shows that Michael is starting to realize that there are reasons to keep living, that maybe killing yourself in prison or in prison rodeos is not the only way. Maybe there is a life to build out here. If if not, why even bother going through this this cathartic event of apologizing to her? I thought that her comment about grandkids and like how you know, wonderful they are. And the way that he kind of made that connection in his head, like you practically could see it happening. The little synapses being like, I have a grandkid and I have a reason to live. You know, like you could see that little like click 
happening after last week where he cuts Fia off. You know, mm-hmm. and he was he yeah. was he was closing that down. Remember, we he spent all of last week's episode doing goodbyes. Otis, I, I can't work here anymore. I don't think I have two weeks left. Fia, I'm my life. Your life is not better with me in it. I can't see you anymore. Charlie, get the fuck out. He he spent all of last week throwing his phone away, running from Elizabeth, uh, running from Olivia. He spent all of last week's episode cutting himself off from all of the ties that bind him to this to this world. You're right. I think he's he by telling Elizabeth that she is a great grandmother is realizing himself for the first time in a significant way. I'm a way. grandpa. I'm a grandpa. I do have a reason to be here. Yeah, and like I have a little guy that I should care about and when Senator Grandma basically spells it out that Adam was the connection to Robin, it was the first time that he thought I'm a grandpa. And Rocco is my connection to Adam. You know, like it goes back the same way. And also Fia becomes the Michael in the Elizabeth situation that he does have family in the same way that Elizabeth maybe doesn't feel super warm towards Michael, but she acknowledges him as family, reluctant as it may be, because he was Adam's father there's an aspect of here and i and i've thought all season that's why i'm bringing it up and maybe this is a stretch to make the connection but for me for for michael's story trying to save or be a presence in baby rocco's life never seemed enough for me i always felt like it was going to have to be michael needing to feel like he has to have a place in baby rocco's life but also in fia's life to give fia the alternative to of family versus what she has with Jimmy and Gina and Carlo. Absolutely. And I think that this this episode with Fia and the Baxters, you know, she's she's pretty done with her family and the way they do things. Let's get over to the uh to the Baxters. We could start with Fia first because I think she has an interesting conversation with the uh, flirty McFlirt priest, uh Father Jay, played by Mark O'Brien. I want to play the back end of that conversation. They they have a pretty long conversation where he establishes that he ha- he has no need for her to be a believer. Her. that that baptism isn't about her believing it isn't about and and or is he there to judge her but i like how he brings her into the fold i like the argument he makes here listening to father jay speak especially in contrast to the priest and nuns that we're dealing with in 1923 podcast that we're dealing with is such a refreshing different approach to religion and faith and and being inclusive in a healthy way let's listen to a flirty priest here I love baptisms. I do, because they, they present the promise of a fresh start, and you do not need to share in, in my faith for us to have a common purpose in this ritual, okay? Okay. Okay. Now, one of the reasons that we do this is to officially bestow a name upon the child. My faith tells me that what we choose to call someone matters a great deal and your set of values tell you the same thing Rocco Adam Baxter the memory of an uncle and the father who helped create his life and the family to whom he belongs those those are the things we'll be honoring on that day it's a celebration of a young mother doing a damn fine job raising her child and no one's going to card you at the door here Appealing to Fia by making common ground with her, you honor your child with what you chose to name him. That's what baptism baptism is about, too. It's honoring those who came before. And uh, so the idea behind baptism, 
for those that don't know or have never really thought about the difference between, say, baptism and confirmation, is baptism is parents making a covenant between God and the baby because the baby is not capable of making that relationship itself. It's not really capable of making that choice itself. So the parents make that choice for the baby to enter into a, a relationship, a covenant, to use the religious terms between the baby and God and begin that relationship and that conversation. Confirmation is when the child now grown up and deemed an adult in the church's eyes then chooses to recommit to that choice made when it was a baby now doing it of its own sound mind and body and taking on a new name as part of the confirmation ceremony it's interesting the way he finds the common ground like Fia, you don't need to believe but let's acknowledge that you put importance and thought into what you're naming your child we honor that and the church has also a, an invested interest in what you're naming the child and who came before and honoring the mother who's taking such good care of raising this child and honoring the father who's no longer here and the brother who has fallen and not but not forgotten i thought it was a very smart way of making common ground and making a non-believer not feel not threatened by the process it was the first time i've ever seen a priest be so open to the idea that you don't have to believe and we're not going to like shut you out. I'm currently being a confirmation sponsor for my nephew and, you know, our local Catholic church had a million questions for me to make sure that I was a good enough Catholic in order to do that. They weren't like, Hey, anybody, anywhere, cool. You don't have to believe so much as I do. It's cool. They were not like that. <laughs> I was kind of surprised. It was refreshing. It was very, um, my dad always had a thing, like if you really wanted to talk to a priest who was much more open-minded, go find a Catholic priest on a college campus because yeah. they tend to be the ones who kind of can find a, find the common ground, kind of bridge the gap between people who are not ready to believe and people who are already in the church. So I feel like he he's giving me that. He was giving me college priest vibes, 100%. you know, someone who was on the campus who was there and you could talk to and can be warmer and more accepting and just understanding that. A cool rap session with the priest. She has a, the potential to... 100% believe in what is going on here. And he sees that. And so instead of shaming her for not being there yet, he just meets her where she is and says, come on over. Now, my only like hmm, about this is that, you know, he's very much glossing over all original sin talk and going to hell if you're not baptized and all that stuff, which is very much motivating Gina. Well, start, yeah, think about how that conversation started. Yada, yada, Jesus, yada, yada, you know. But it's, do you yada, know what I'm yada. saying? Like, it, like a, it's a it's a convenient thing to leave off, you know, like why your mom's so upset. We're just going to not talk about that part. We're going to talk about how this is about a name, which, to be honest with you, I've never heard baptism described as this is a about naming your child. I've never heard it described that way. Not in the Catholic church. There is such a rush. I mean, I had premature twins and then I had a third kiddo. I mean, I'm talking, my mother was calling from the hospital. If we could go directly from the hospital to the chapel to get them baptized because God forbid something happened to them before they were baptized, they were going to hell. Not because they didn't have a name that the church recognized. So I was like, okay, I mean, this is an explanation. It's an explanation, but it certainly isn't one I had ever heard. It was very nice. It was very sweet. I, I don't think he's using it as the end-all be-all. I mean, he does acknowledge when Gina is there and she says, we're, we're trying to save a soul. And him and Gina, the priest and Gina kind of like chuckle about it. He's like, yes, of course, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. He kind 
kind of gives a look to Gina, like, let me talk to your daughter here. Because, again, and he says a couple of things before they sit down. The clip was too long to play the whole thing, but it's really worth going back and listening to from when Gina walks away. The entire clip is really great in totality because it starts with her saying, I'm only here because of my mom. And he says essentially what Jimmy said to her last week. There are worse things to do. There are worse reasons to do something than doing them because your parents want you to do them when it comes to religious things. Why not get into the original sin talk? Why not get into all of that? Because that's not the common ground with Fia. Oh, no, I get it. I understand why he decided to do this. I'm just saying I've never heard this approach. Right. I mean, he does start by saying he's, he's he does say I love because the, right before the clip that we played, he says so much of what I do focuses on the end of life, focuses on the struggles and the pain that comes at, at the time of death and repentance and and regrets for the things you did or things you didn't do. And so that's why I love baptism, because they're focusing on the start of something new, the start of something new is that relationship it's not only the start of new life but it's the start of that new relationship with god i think he's just very targetedly only looking to the common grounds because i think he's a good judge of character he understands like you said he's meeting fia where she is so he's focusing on those hand-picked aspects that baptism does represent in order to kind of get her on board because you know original sin and and washing away original sin is it's not going to convince her. No, it's really not. It's it. No, he took a good approach with Fia. It's just not an approach I've ever heard. I wanted to talk about how flirty these two seemed because... I can't even get over it. Like, I'm surprised we talk so much about this baptism talk because that is not what this scene was about. And I have, I have in my notes, I mean, yeah. But I mean, it, this was about, like, some sort of... There were sparks flying. The chemistry was wild and it was and it was i mean i don't want to say it was distracting but it certainly i don't care why he said they were doing baptism i wanted to know if they were gonna like kiss because this seemed crazy you know i was like whoa i I have questions at the end of this episode i have a list of questions that came up that i'm looking forward to um to be answered in the coming episodes And, and one of them i put there jokingly and and will fia and father jay fuck because listen and if you've listened to any of the podcasts that we do, I'm always about putting people together. And clearly this is a natural, like, they're definitely going to get something done. Here's the thing. And here's some real world experience. Uh, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a little background on Mike and religion, real abbreviated version. So my father was Catholic. My mother was Protestant. She was Lutheran. Uh, growing up, my two sisters who were older than me were both baptized. They were baptized Lutheran. When it came to me, I was five and seven years younger than my two sisters, or they were five and seven years older than me. My mother, who has passed at this point, wanted to have her best friend, who was Jewish, be my godmother. My grandmother on my father's side, a very Italian old woman, flipped and would not have it. And it became a source of of strife in my family as I learned years later when I was told the story. And so in the end, I was not baptized. I was a heathen soul lost in the woods. I would eventually convert to Catholicism in my mid-20s for other reasons that have nothing to do with this story. But for all of that time, I, I, I was not baptized where everyone else in my family was. As circumstances went, I ended up going to a Catholic high school, one of the largest Catholic high schools in the country, where I had a very detailed Roman Catholic education and a very kind of indoctrination into religion and, and all sorts of world religions and comparative religions. And I took all 
other courses, but specifically into Roman Catholicism. And then I went to a large Catholic college again, and not even baptized. It was a very funny story. I was on the football team my freshman year. We had a prayer, like a prayer breakfast before our first game, which before even school started. And I took the Eucharist. I didn't know. I thought I didn't know. I didn't know what Eucharist was. It was, I hadn't even started school yet. I came home and I told my father that I had taken Eucharist and his head almost fucking exploded. He was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I didn't, I didn't See, understand. This is how I know that you're a textbook Catholic and not a born in Catholic. Because ain't nobody call it Eucharist. Like, who was born into it? It's communion. It's so super funny to me because you use all the technical terms because you are a textbook Catholic, which cracks me up. So, but you know, that that's how little I knew. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to, to take the wafer. I wasn't supposed to take communion. I didn't know. I didn't know. So that's how uneducated I was about religion when I began high school. Which is such an ironic statement because I think you're far more educated in Catholicism than I am. But yet I would know you can't take the communion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Isn't that funny? Like you're so steeped in the rules you are. Like like you don't know the street smarts of being Catholic. Well, I didn't know when I was 13, just starting high school. But then over then I spent my next eight years of my education with learning about Catholicism as a ev- literally an everyday, even when I went to college, in addition to liberal arts courses in my major, like I had to take Catholic courses. I took I took as a science course, I took biblical archaeology. It was fantastic. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, so I mean What do you really- think? Is that really Noah's Ark up there? Yes. That's they, really it? I, no, it's not. I don't you think so. You believe it? I want to no, know. I no, I don't. I think there is you some You don't biblical, believe it? I don't believe that's actually Noah's Ark, but I think there is some Even biblical Even though it's like measured to the exact, um, the exact specifications and everything? I don't know. I don't have wow, my... Oh, Mike. You better watch out. The Catholic, the Catholic God's going to get you. The Catholic And God. you're not even baptized. Are you baptized now? I am baptized. I was baptized in my mid-20s and I, I firmly... Oh, I was, so I was, I was baptized, received... Uh, con- I was baptized, confirmed, did my first... Uh, uh, penance and what else did I get? So you went to confession. No one calls it penance, confession. <laughs> and you did first communion, I and, and, and first communion, all in the same shot. It was all over okay, an Easter Sunday. That's hilarious. Sunday. They just like they just like rolled you from like one sacrament to the next. It's like uh, Roman <laughs> Roman Catholic initiation for adults. It was RCIA. I had to take classes yeah, for yeah, about yeah. three it's months. Like, it's, then, like, it's like it's like like uh, they did like um like we're in nursery school and they do like centers and they're like over here you're going to receive first communion and then you go over there. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. So, so I went through this whole journey with coming to religion and, and I, I've always been interested in religion. I'm still fascinated by religion. I, I'm even now at this point now a lapsed Catholic. I haven't gone to church in quite a long time. And well, that's hilarious. You go through the trouble of becoming a Catholic. You learn all the rules. You're like kicking ass as a Catholic. You got all the sacraments, including, I assume, being married in the Catholic church. I, I was. I was. Yes. Dang. And then you lapsed. Uh, yes. Dude, you put in all the work. You put in so much more work than us born in Catholics. Yeah, well, but I understand. We don't even do the studies like you do. We do some CCD, CCE, depending on where you're at. And uh, I played baseball. I I played baseball for St. Kevin's in Queens, and and everyone like practices were based around when kids had CCD after school. And I was like, CC who? Yeah, because we went to because we went to public school. (laughs) CC because these kids all played for St. Kevin's, and I actually had to get a waiver into the parish to play CYO baseball. Oh my God, they're like ignore the fact that he's got. you know, hell looming over him. Yeah, like Let he, him play ball. He doesn't have one of those cool <laughs> flaming halos behind his head when he shows up in artwork. Oh, my God. Tell me you were like the Padres. 
No, we were left fryers. What were you? Little angels. We were the milk barn. We were just the milk barn team. And then we were the milk barn. Because milk barn <laughs> sponsored our team. And then uh and then we were they just called you the milk barn. Well, it's the milk barn team. Milk you just barn, yelled like go milk barn. Milk barn farms. Milk barn, milk barn farms, farms. farms. farms sponsored my first team and then Carvel, because one of the kids on our team, his father owned the local Carvel. He sponsored Oh my our team. god, did you try to be best friends with him? I, I was Raymond Raymond Eprizizi. Uh, he was he was a good kid, <laughs> but truly But I can, also he had the Carvel hookup. Yes, I can honestly say now looking back on it, I definitely used him for his pinwheel uh pinwheel connection. Oh my god, that's amazing. Amazing. I love it. All right. Well, let's get back to this priest and Fia because, yo, what's the point of knowing your entire Catholic story? So I spent a lot of time around priests. This was my point. I that was, was your point? My point was I spent a lot of time around priests in high school. Okay. And then I spent a lot, of, a, lot of time, a lot of time around priests in college as, as teachers and also having to go to confession and all those kinds of things. Young priests are all flirty. This oh. energy that Father Jay is giving off is so consistent. It's big P energy. Big priest energy. All of the young priests I've ever known in my life all have this this energy. They all do. And you have to learn that it's... Probably Jesus did, too. I mean, I, you know he was charismatic. You know he was a charming person. Being charisma, it's not just for salesmen. Like, priests have... They're selling, no. right? Yeah. It's a sales job. And, and so the charisma it was very consistent. So it's easy for me to ask the question, like, these two go to fuck? Because that's where I, I always want to go. But in, in, in being truthful and honest, with my life experiences, this is very similar energy to all of the young priests I ever got to know. Well, definitely young priests tend to have the most excitement and energy for the job, right? So they're they're always like trying to be like, come on, they're always willing to whip party. out a guitar Everyone's and be invited. like, yeah. you've got plenty of room, come on over. Let me like, sing you a song if my words didn't work and they whip oh out the guitar. Oh my god, that's total youth like, ministry. Oh uh, yeah, youth youth ministries, man. Every was... youth minister I've ever met is yeah. <laughs> like this. Come on. Oh, oh no, what are you singing? Yeah, you know, whatever. So it's all good stuff. Sounds it's like a man stuff. never sing a song with a priest with a guitar. I don't have I don't have my acoustic guitar here. You just, so just started to I like you're class. the Shirelles or something. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. There's, there's no like doo-wop in Jesus Catholic is back. Hey. Jesus is back. And he can really shake it down. <laughs> Do you love me? Yes, Jesus loves you. Do you love me? Yes, I said he loves you. Do you love me? Let's just do that. Let's start a podcast revival. Yeah? Revival podcast? Watch me now. Jesus. Yeah, anywho. Jesus is always watching. Yeah, yeah. That's all the conversation. Now I do need to go to confession. Anyway, yeah. So the whole point of that was this energy, very flirty, but it's it's very in line with young charismatic priest energy okay so you're so you're just kind of chalking this up to like all right everybody don't be expecting a fia and a you know a disgraced priest situation you're not she does try and kiss him but he he he's like no sorry no 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 something like that that would be my guess i think at worst like oh you have misunderstood you were (laughs) you're not getting the holy spirit from me young lady so my god that's a euphemism I just did there. The Holy Ghost. <sighs> now you're all hot and bothered. There are lightning bubbles strike me down when I leave this room later. Uh, <laughs> he can get you anywhere. He can get you inside. 
But interesting, though, because now she has an ally. Remember, she doesn't have Michael right now. She's done with her family. So I expect Father Jay to become an ally for her in whatever their relationship is. I think that's the ultimate importance of this character is someone she can turn to and how unlikely an ally than the Catholic priest, given her beliefs, would become an ally or a source of refuge for her and for the baby, given how crazy her family is. Do you think that this priest sticks around and continues to play a role over the next couple of episodes? I mean, IMDb has him listed for a few episodes, so I think we're going to see him again. I knew you did your research. I just wanted you to tell the audience. Yeah, I don't remember how many I saw, but I think I saw him booked for more than one episode. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to see uh, old Father Jay again. Uh, okay. Let's get into the other Baxters, because this episode, when we weren't talking about Robin or weren't in Desireland, most of this episode was spent about Jimmy getting his ass owned by his father-in-law, Carmine. Ooh, and I'm going to say the theme of this one is shit rolls downhill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's start at the very beginning, because so Carmine says, I'm, you're taking this meeting with the Cal- uh, Calabri family to make an investment. This is a lose-lose situation for Jimmy, right? Because the second he takes this meeting, he has to accept their offer. I know. That was like the worst part of that. It was like, you take the meeting, you have to do it. You have to, because you risk a literal mob war with a, with an, a New York crime family if you don't. Which that's unacceptable. And well, that's probably one Jimmy's not going to win is, is my guess. Of course. Uh, you know, so, and Carmine knows that. He knows this, the, just by proposing it, he almost has to do it. it. It's like he, he, Carmine sums it into being just by making the meeting even happen. You know what I mean? Like he can't say no. He cannot say no. His father-in-law aside kind of forcing the situation. Well, let, this is what the Calabri family deal is. Eight-figure investments, so that's like 10, 10 to $99 million, right, into Jimmy's Baxter district. But as part of that, he has to allow the Calabri family to start using their ports. Now, I like that Jimmy made his little snarky, I wasn't aware that New York Harbor dried up. And Philip just kind of stares at him. He's the younger Calabri. But the old man Calabri starts in the Italian to to Carmine. And I thought that was funny. Old men in their Italian. Jimmy, it's a good deal. <laughs> I like you said, chit, 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 to be there, there chatting back and forth to each other. Uh, and all I could think here was, damn it, Jimmy, all these years you've been married to Gina, how did you never take a Duolingo or like a like <laughs> or a Rosetta just pick up some on your own? Or like a Rosetta Stone in Italian. It feels like something right. you should have done as an occupational hazard. <laughs> it would have been a good idea. So, I mean, and Philip says that none of the drugs that will come in through the port, he doesn't deny the drugs are going to come in, but he says none of it will stay in New Orleans. New Orleans. But later on, Carmine is Carmine lays out in no, no uncertain terms, all manners of evil are going to come through these ports now. I thought it was actually quite shocking that he used the example of sex trafficking. That was more than I expected. I kind of thought he was going to keep it to like a no one's going to get hurt. It's just drugs and stolen goods or whatever. But when he started talking about sex trafficking i was like uh i mean let's play these two clips because this is these are two clips broken up of one long conversation that takes place right out in the open where they're not using hushed tones they're just talking in the by the elevator bank of the of the hotel but it's an important conversation because it really gets to the heart of who is jimmy baxter a question that we have been asking ourselves for two seasons now this guy is complicated he wants to be a businessman but he is a mobster but is he a mobster because we never really see him doing mobster stuff 
loved, love this story that Carmen tells, Carmine tells. Like, I, I mean, like freaking love it. It, it answered everything that I kept saying about Jimmy for this entire series. I have begged, I've said to you, we've been told he's a mobster. We've been told he is so great at doing these businesses and all stuff, but show me, show me. And this story was like, uh huh, you are the mark. Let's listen to these two clips, because this is really the two devils on Jimmy's shoulder. The one devil that is telling Jimmy, you're a businessman, you're a businessman. And then the other devil saying, you're a thug, you're a thug. So this is the first devil. This is the devil. This is how Jimmy sees himself as a businessman, which Carmine is saying he's a little bit full of shit right here. And I will never not love that you say businessman like snowman. (laughs) Here's the difference between my control and your control. Your control is a figment of your imagination. I see you in your press suits in your pristine hotels. It's just an act designed to fool one person. You trade on my name and my reputation, and you act like a gangster when it's convenient. And then you tell yourself, I'm just a businessman. You, you were very good at what you did. So am I. My restaurants, my businesses, my pristine hotels have made you a very rich man. So have some respect for what I do. That's important because that's how Jimmy sees himself. Yeah, maybe I have to get my hands dirty, but for the most part, I'm making you rich. I'm making our family rich doing the businessman thing, not 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 what you do. Yeah, he doesn't necessarily deny that the Conti name was important in him getting going. He He's never outright denied it. His thing is always that, yeah, but look what I did with it, though. I did more than I did more than the sum of its parts. Yes, the Conti name maybe got me contracts, maybe got me in the door, but my business acumen made you rich, made all of us rich, and that's not thuggery. That's how Jimmy sees himself, right? Is that a fair assessment of what that clip is telling us? Yeah, I think so. But also, you know, the whole concept of, uh, man, the line about... The difference between your control and my control is, a, is yours is a figment of your imagination. Oh, my God. I, I, you've got to find a way to use this in your life, people. Like, that is an amazing line that has to, like, suck the air out of the room. Like, that is intense. I really, really needed this come to Jesus for Jimmy. I needed someone to point out everything that I feel like I've been saying this whole time, which is, like, show me what you've built i'm not even sure what part the contis played like if they if they got him like the location of the hotel and maybe even the hotel building itself then i don't know this is in you know the french quarter like i I mean businesses are successful there like you know what i mean like i don't know how much did you have to do jimmy to make it be successful getting the actual hotel itself would have been a huge part of it now they never go into the details of how much the contis really helped versus just was it enough to have the reputation was it enough to be like do you know who i am and then you get the best deal on your food or whatever you know like who knows how that really played out but i really i needed this 
I needed this little comeuppance for Jimmy. Let's listen to the conversation from breakfast from last week's episode, because it goes into it a little bit um, and, and, and maybe illuminates a little bit what the Conti name did for him. We were just talking about the waterfront deal. We've got to secure this lease before that mayor opens it up to other bidders. We were promised this land. Manling it. Are you? Yes. How? Establishing a relationship with our new mayor. Hmm? Uh, hearing him out, negotiating. We should never beg. I never do. I have built a few businesses in my time. All on your own, huh? All those city contracts you were awarded, the unions that never caused trouble, the peace and prosperity that you've enjoyed, all that was earned, but not by you. The Baxter business was built on the Conti name. That's right. Sounds like union contracts keeping some of the red tape bureaucratic red tape out of it so and and he has mentioned that he has businesses all over the city so my guess is that baxter house is the crown jewel in the french quarter but it sounds like baxter has has holdings and restaurants and and such all over of new orleans so it's a it's i think it's a combination i think it's a combination of business of business decisions but also with doors and and grease being made through the conti name yeah i mean i think it's easy to be a good businessman if nobody challenges you <laughs> how how good you look well that and that gets to carmine's real thesis statement which is which is how he starts by essentially telling the story of Carmine and Mark when they were young boys and Mark is Jimmy in this situation the you do all the dirty work I'm not a thief but I'm going to reap the benefits of it let's listen to the thug clip he's looking out I'm swiping stuff until finally I said to him you steal something this time but Mark didn't want to do that I asked him why not you know what he said I'm not a thief. You need the Calabri's money. And through your docks, they will bring in drugs. They will bring in crime. They will bring in women and girls, human beings sold into servitude to other human beings. Through this city, we'll pass all manner of evil because of you. You think you're better than me, you fucking son of a bitch? No, 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 Jimmy. I'm done watching you lie to yourself. You are nothing but a thug, just like me. No, 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 you fucking son of a bitch. <laughs> I liked it when he said, when the, he does the, the voice of Mark, and he's like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a thug. Like I loved that little that little accent he did. It was like it was adorable. That was my grandma and my great aunt Dolores. It, it was <laughs> I could hear their voices when he does that, and he's got oh, like funny. he's got the teeth. It it was he's got the teeth. <laughs> it, yeah, because I'm pretty sure maybe there's there's some dentures or the teeth are yeah, a little too yeah. big for the mouth kind of yeah. thing. But just and the accent, <laughs> it was it was like being sitting on the plastic cover furniture in my great aunt's house as she's telling some story like I'm not a thief. It, it was very it was almost muppety. It was it was I loved it. I love the muppetiness of it. But you know what? It was 
perfect because this has been a question I kept asking you. I kept saying, you know, what is the deal with Jimmy? You know, he acts like he's just this hot shit guy. But besides Frankie, what in the world does this guy have actually going? You know, what? where is all this organized crime? And the reality is, is like, well, it's not him. He's the mark. He sits back and he benefits from all of the thievery and whatnot that the Contis have done and other families have done that allow him to sit there like that and try to act like he didn't do anything wrong it's fascinating to me because it's actually like kind of the a little bit the reverse of what i was saying like he's always trying to act like he's this gangster or we're being told he's a gangster but i never believed that he did shit and i'm not counting the stuff he did like say shooting trevor right at the boat docks place we can't count that because that's his personal life that's about his son dying that's his personal life we have never seen him in business action that's not about these hurt personal feelings that's not about all this other stuff we've never seen him like secure these deals by being this gangster badass so i'm like oh i'm so curious how they're going to continue to go with this but a guy like jimmy cannot take being pushed around without doing some pushing himself uh, yeah, I mean, th- there's a slow build here, right? Jimmy, Jimmy but gets it off. It is so good. Jimmy, this whole episode is just Carmine pushing Jimmy and pushing Jimmy and Gina pushing Jimmy and pushing Jimmy, and 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 it's it starts literally at the beginning when he forces when Carmine forces him to take that Calabri meeting, and it builds to this conversation where off where he gets off a little bit, right, a little puff of his chest of you know i'm very good at what i do and please respect that a little bit but then he shuts him down here and and carbine is just saying i I, this whole idea of i'm not gonna let you lie to yourself like you're a piece of shit thug just like i am all all manner of evil will will come through this city because of you you gotta you gotta call it a duck is a duck right if it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck and it quacks like a duck it's a duck and carmine is telling jimmy he's a thug duck here and he's gotta he's 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 got to admit it because Carmine doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Carmine doesn't want to see Jimmy continue to make him seem like this king shit when he's he's a thug just like Carmine. Carmine knows who he is, and he's he's trying to tell Jimmy here, like, you're you're no better than me. That's what it is. It's because he's walking around acting like his shit don't stink because he doesn't get down and get his he doesn't get his hands dirty like Carmine does. Okay, but yeah, but you benefit. And but that's the funny thing. I've been saying this whole time. Jimmy doesn't get his hands dirty. When are they going to show us getting Jimmy's hands dirty? And they never did. And that was the whole beef of this conversation was, Jimmy, you never get your hands dirty, but you act like you're such a strong, fierce man that you go out there and you just bang heads together. And the reality is, no, you don't. You don't, but you benefit from people who do. And then you act like you're so good and so much better than everyone. So the slow burn continues into the hospital now after the car crash with joey which we're going to get to when we talk about desire carlo finds himself in the hospital where you would thought carlo maybe given given some of the growth that they've seen with fia and given the impassioned speech that eugene gives and then chooses not to kill him 
there there was this silly glimmer of hope. I felt very much like a Charlie Brown with Lucy holding the football, right? It, like, obviously, Carlo was going to pull the football away, and he didn't change at all. And he spins the story of, Eugene tried to kill me, and he was a piece of shit, and he ran away. And, oh, I, I, had, I, I, didn't, I couldn't get him because I was trapped in the car. He spins this in a very favorable, sympathetic way for himself because Carlo was a piece of shit and, and has not changed, in fact. But anyway, but the for the slow burn purposes... Gina completely passes over Jimmy in the power in the chain of command and instructs, tells Frankie, we need to get this fucking kid and we need to get him tonight, meaning Eugene. And Jimmy tries. He tries to step into it and he says, I'll handle it. And Gina shuts him down. She's not having it. So again, we see Gina going over Jimmy or around Jimmy telling Frankie. Poor Frankie is about to get the shit rolling downhill that you used so perfectly earlier because this is the end. Well, it's not quite the end. The slow burn hasn't completely bubbled over. It bubbles over when Carmine takes Jimmy and pins him to the wall. And that was so awful. That was so awful. James. Are you so afraid? Of being like the drunk daddy of yours that you have forgotten what it takes to be a man, huh? Knock hmm? the fuck up! Cusack has to call me back. Last I heard, Joey left town. He was living in the streets. He should have been dead by now. Our own cops even said so. I agree with Gina, Jim. Let's find Eugene and let's send a message to the whole city. I cut it off there because that's the last words that Frankie says. He's he's trying to continue to say Jimmy through the first couple of hits there, but then he is done speaking and it just continues with Jimmy beating him. So the slow burn is Gina goes over Michael or around Michael to instruct Frankie to get Eugene ASAP. Carmine pits him against the wall, tells him to nut up. And I think what makes that even worse is that he does it in front of Frankie. Frankie is watching it because he's on the phone in the hallway and he literally stops. Thousand percent. He literally stops to watch his boss be cucked by his old man father-in-law. And you know what was even kind of even like extra kind of like wild about that? It makes it look like Carmine hits Jimmy, but he doesn't. He just like pushes his face. But there was something about it that seemed so. Well, I think he like punched the wall as he moved his face and he screams, nut, he nut the fuck up. I mean, that's that's such a. Mm. It was bad. It was really bad and really, really horrible for it to happen in front of Frankie. I mean, that that's that's really why Frankie's getting this beating. Frankie had, should have had the sense to walk the other direction for a bit. What does Frankie do, though? Frankie seals his fate by saying, I agree with Gina, Jim. Oh, that was death, man. That, death. Is, that is where the top blows from the volcano. That is what causes him. That is the, ex- that's the exact moment that uh, Jimmy decides to grab that tray and begin to beat him. If he doesn't say, if he doesn't say, I agree with Gina, Jim, and he does go, or, or even if he goes in that room and doesn't say those words, Maybe he doesn't get the shit kicked out of him, but he does. And so he does. So at the end of the episode, you got to ask yourself, is Frankie dead? Frankie may be dead. I kind of assumed Frankie is dead because that was a pretty extreme beating. In a way, we need that kind of stuff to start happening, right? Because the season and slash series is coming to an end. Like we need there to be, you know, real stakes here. And Jimmy blowing his top and losing his like right hand man. So he thinks really, I mean, 
to me, when when Frankie said, I agree with Gina, all I could hear in my head was Frankie can handle, like, can take yes. care of that for I me. think that's all Jimmy heard, too. That's was, you, all Are I you heard. fucking my wife? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all and, I heard. So and, I was like, the oh, fact man, that he how are you not going to die? The fact that he says Jim, too, and not, like, Mr. Baxter or something more supplicant, but more yeah. like we're equals... I agree with your wife, who maybe you think I'm fucking, and now I'm going to call you Jim. Not maybe you think I'm fucking, that she threw in your face. Right. And and Frankie doesn't know that that. happened, you know? Right. It's so bad. But it goes all the way back to season one, when he realizes, he learns from her, that she talks to Frankie regularly behind his back. Like, the Mm -hmm. seeds have been sown well in this show to divide Frankie against Jimmy because of Gina. Like, they've done a good job of sowing the seeds, and this is where we get now in episode, you know, in part 16 of this series. This is it. Is Frankie dead? I think it's a very good chance Frankie's dead. He's really not moving there. So at at the very least, he's maybe in a coma or severely knocked out. And maybe good that he's dead because, again, the whole, like, Jimmy's got got to get his hands dirty at some point, right? And, And Frankie is one of the people who have insulated him from having to do that maybe a little carmine palpatine action like he's standing in a corner watching jimmy beat frankie going yes yes kind of yeah <laughs> kind of yeah it. you know like a little yeah. bit like so, so to go yeah, to the dark side but, yeah. let's talk really quickly about carlo gina and jimmy because early in the episode when he's getting ready to go to the calabri meeting carlo stops him says i want to go to the meeting for uh jimmy says no the next one you got to sit this one out you go to the next one question why you think he doesn't let him go i have a theory i'm curious what your what your theory is oh i just don't think carlo's ready and i also think that jimmy doesn't need carlo to go back and be singing about what went on exactly to gina and i think he's he is fair to worry about having carlo there for that so for me i would just be like you know what i knowing that this is going to be an awkward likely preliminary type conversations with things where i'm gonna have to be like giving up more than i want then yeah i don't need witnesses for that that are gonna go back and tell gina what a baby i am or something i think that's what it was i, I think i think he does legitimately because he's this, the only son he has now i think there is an aspect of him he said that he took him to the algiers right to the waterfront and and wanted him to be passionate about the business. he acted like a fool when he did bring him out there. Yes, but but I don't think that changes Jimmy's desire that his son do do it. But I know Jimmy knew he was about to get bent over at this meeting, and I don't think he wanted his son to see that happen. Jimmy knew, because for what the reason we said, the mere fact of taking this meeting meant that Jimmy was going to have to live with whatever, whatever shit was shoved in his mouth. I don't think he wanted his son to watch that happen. I think that's why he doesn't let him in the meeting. Carlo is a whiny baby, and he goes to his mother to cry about the fact that his father is freezing him out. And Gina, because Gina's always willing to go around Jimmy, says, I'll talk to him about it. Carlo, you're a grown-ass man. Stop leaving babies with Angela in rooms. Stop going oh to your mother God. when your relationship with your father's not working out. Stop, be a man. And, like, honestly, though, like, I know you're kind of breezing by what I said about bringing him out to Algiers, but he didn't want to be a part of it. He was like, can't I just come back when it's all built? Like, he didn't want to be a You've part of it. You've got no so, vision, son. Yeah, if I am the parent and I have brought my kid out there thinking, okay, like, is he ready to be a part of this? And he gives me as that, that's the response. Then guess what? No, you're not sitting in on the next meeting and in fact i don't want you to be here because i don't want you to start saying stupid shit like can i just come back when this is all built like yeah carlo come back when it's all built go go home go be with angela go just go be by yourself okay go watch your security cameras that's all you're good go for. watch your security cameras well i think that really takes us to the desire gang and the saga of big mo 
and Little Man. Let's start at the beginning of this storyline. We see the three kilos that Big Mo had pulled from the streets early in the season have resurfaced because she has no product to sell. They haven't started getting the pipeline running yet with Roderick and the cartel gang uh, drugs. So she needs to do something with this three kilos. So again, just to refresh your memory, the problem is that the this heroin was cut with fentanyl and it was not cut well, was not mixed well. Nine bodies, I think the number was, uh, the number was that we had heard. Oh my gosh, can I tell you something so funny? This just hit me because I because you just said that. Okay, so over the weekend, or not? Yeah, over the weekend, I was at um, my parents' lake house and we were like chit chatting about uh, bait. <laughs> And I'm realizing that I think I used information from this show <laughs> and acted like I saw it on the news <laughs> because I said something about fentanyl. Like I was joking about like, oh, we could get some bait. And I was like, but it could be like cut with fentanyl. I was like making these jokes about cutting stuff with fentanyl. And I was like, you know, like fentanyl is like coming into the country. <laughs> oh, no, it's a real issue. It's No, it yeah. is. No, it totally is. But I didn't see it on the news. I saw it on this show. <laughs> But I'm like acting like it's like, it's like, yeah, you guys, we should get some bait before the Baxters take over New Orleans. Like, I'm like acting like that. Like, it's real. That's so so funny. funny. (laughs) It just hit me when you said fentanyl. I was like, oh, crap. Did I just use that as like a news story? New York State is currently going through a major opioid crisis. You can't just say that right after I'm laughing. Well, well, because it's relevant, though, because this because and Sullivan County in particular, the amount of drugs that are being cut with fentanyl is is staggering. I, I don't even understand why. For the every all the reasons they say in this episode, just so little of it will kill you. So if you get the wrong mixture into the dosage, it's crazy. It, it's it's like a real crazy thing. So I'm glad that they're talking about it though, because you never hear about this on TV shows. You hear like drugs on the streets or whatever, but you never really get into the nitty gritty. I mean, the fact that Terrence, uh, Chris's little brother, ends up dying in this episode. Oh my gosh, that was so sad. And the way he like turns his back on Big Mo during that. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. And remember last week when I said I have severe concerns that Big Mo is losing control of her gang. And I felt like this was a real moment when he turned his back. Big Mo was really shocked that he did that. And that disrespect on display again, just like Frankie witnessing Jimmy's, you know, uh, disrespect situation. All the other gang members were in the room witnessing that disrespect that I'm like, oh, Right. I mean, let's talk about the immediate effects of Little Mo not being around. We've got these guys cutting this three kilo bricks of heroin right out in the open. They don't even close the blinds. What are we doing? There's no security anymore. Bufas is just completely open to the public to to look in the windows while they're cutting drugs out in the open. I, I was astounded. Like, it was so silly as to make me, like, chortle in how dumb it is. The fact that Joey is allowed to take a picture inside the blinds, where's the security that is always outside of Bufas? The fact that Joey and uh, Carlo are allowed to be in a car one block away we've seen twice in this season where carlo was caught by the by the watchers and roderick just an episode ago by the watchers when anyone gets near bufas yet these two are allowed to cock guns and and be right there watching and stalking it's falling apart it's falling apart immediately in the aftermath of little mo not being there and big mo is not at this she's not at this granular level she's not taking care of this level of the business no one is apparently 
I think that this is a serious moment that that Big Mo is experiencing that I don't know how she comes back from this. Her attention is so split with the club and thinking that she can be over there and running that and being with Janelle and all that stuff without having like a right hand man without without having little Mo. You know, you she just doesn't she doesn't have a tight grasp on the reins and you're right. I mean, I really didn't even think that hard about the lookout guys, but you're right. Where are they all? Like they, they just like are, you know, blown off to the wind kind of thing. Like this is trouble. This, this means people aren't looking out for big Mo around the entire neighborhood. That's, that's even worse than what's happening inside, you know, Bufa's because she can deal with her, with her people one-on-one, but if they're all like no longer have her back out in the street, what is happening? What do you think about her attitude about, we'll just send this into the city and like, you know, whatever happens out there happens out there. I mean, from a drug dealer's standpoint, it makes a lot of sense, right? The deal with Charlie was he helps forget the club and bodies stop dropping in the lower ninth. I mean, at least they go, they take the step of let's cut this stuff to make it as weak as possible so no bodies drop. But also as a precaution, don't sell it in the lower ninth, sell it out in the city. So if bodies do drop, it can't be traced back to us. That's kind of like a, a like a two factor authentication that she's trying, to, that she's trying to do it because she needs to raise money, right? Because one of the, one part of the deal deal with Roderick, I think, was that they actually have to come up with the money or at least like an initial payment in order to get those drugs flowing. So she needs to sell this three kilo of of heroin in order to get money running again because she's got no money coming in. Grand Rain doesn't look like it's open yet. Like she's got no income coming in. She needed these drugs back on the street. So at least she was willing to cut it with, um, you know, baking soda and, and uh, powdered milk and all that kind of stuff to make it as weak as possible and counter their act counter the effects of the fentanyl in there but if a little kid gets it even if it is cut well for an adult to handle it terrence gets a hold of a balloon boom you've got a dead kid in the lower ninth now and terrence was so cute and little and he just wanted to hang out and i was like oh little guy because that's how we really met eugene at that same kind of little guy stage and so there was something i think about showing a little boy like that and him dying that 100% when we talk about good storytelling, we always have like parallels. Eugene was that little boy. And well, Terrence even says, I thought you were, because he says, why can't I hang out here? I thought you were a man now. And Chris, you know, puffs his chest out. He says, I've always been the man, but you know, mom will kill me. You know, she, you know, mom will kill my ass if you're hanging around here. Like, he's like, I am the man, but I'm also terrified of our mom. Like, you got to go home. You know, he's just a little kid. He's just a little kid. What is he doing taking, taking balloons of heroin? What is happening here? He was trying to be a big guy. He's trying to run with the big horses, right? The big dogs. He just can't. I want to talk about Big Mo and regrets separate from all of this stuff, because I think I think the question you raised is definitely one of the questions for going forward that we have to ask at the end of the episode. Big Mo has to listen to a little bit of a sermon, she calls it, from Eugene, but you have to pair it together with the conversation she has with Janelle in the Grand Rain, where Janelle advises her that if she keeps turning off her heart to do her business, uh, she may eventually find that she can't turn her heart back on. So let's listen to Big Mo and uh, Eugene have a little bit of heart-to-heart before he gets on the bus. Take care of yourself, little man. What's gonna happen to Lil Mo? They ain't up to me no more. Your sister. She took me in, she treated me good. She's a nice lady. Yeah, I know. 
Why don't you talk to her no more? Ain't up to me either. Just saying. Lil Mo, Aunt Sheila. If my family was still alive, I'd make sure nothing got in between us. Nothing. You done with your sermon? Good. Now you take your ass back to Houston. And I hope I never see you again. So she's lost little Mo. Sounds like she's lost Aunt Sheila due to Aunt Sheila not wanting to talk to her. And now the heart of the group, the true heart of the group, Eugene, she's sending back to Houston. She is no one left. She she has lost her family. She has lost her blood. She has Janelle. But for how long does she have Janelle if she continues to close off her heart? Big Mo has painted herself into a corner because she wants to have the family and she wants to have the hugs and kisses of a Janelle, but she doesn't anymore. And nor does she seem like she has a grasp or the or two hands on the business wheel on the drug kingpin business wheel that she needs to have either. She's adrift, it feels like to me. I don't know what your take is after hearing all that. I think 100%. And I think Eugene, not unlike Carmine's story, like really held up a perfect mirror to her and said, like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? You have family here and you are willingly letting it fall apart and, and get ruined. And you can look at the gang as also her family, you know, and you're and you're letting it slip through your fingers. And if I had the opportunity to go back, I would do anything I could to keep everybody together. And and it was I mean, he was wise beyond his years, Eugene, for, to the very bitter end has been wise he baptism by fire right he, I mean, he, ma- he makes the choices and says the things that we wish most of the adults would do if if, if it was a fifth we'd all be fucking drunk right so exactly. i mean exactly <laughs> eugene is eugene is all of us i think screaming at the at the cameras for these guys let's talk about his his big interaction when he's in the car russell is driving him to the train uh to the bus station train station i'm thinking of yellowstone uh, russell is driving him to the bus station thank god he puts the seatbelt back on you knew that was going to come into play because they focus so much on him reattaching his seatbelt and then you have this dumbass joey driving into the side of the car and and flipping their car one let's ask a, a high level question why Carla was dumb as bricks we, we know this Carla was not a smart man but he has to be smart enough to know he should not get into a car where joey high as a kite is driving how is joey maldini even still alive how is joey even have a car to drive at this point that's shocking to me very surprised when frankie was so shocked that joey was back on the scene i was like well good that makes two of us yeah and not dead (laughs) not back on the scene but not dead somewhere how did you do this joey how are you not in jail at least at the very minimum I could have sworn he had died. I had to actually go back and watch the end when he passes out during he's given his testimony. Yeah. They never say anything. He, they just kind of drag him out of there, kind of like a, <laughs> like one of the pilots from an airplane when they get food poisoning. Yeah. This, like, let's, let's not look at Joey Maldini anymore. Right. I mean, the judge even says you have to strike Joey Maldini from your mind as if he never existed. I think because he says as if he never existed is why I think he had died. But no, uh, yeah, Joey Maldini, Jesus Christ. So, I mean, he's, he's like a cockroach, he, man. He's got, he's got infinite lives. He's tweaking hard. He still has a 20 to buy drugs. He still has a car somehow. But uh, to Carlo, you dumbass. Like, I know you want him to drive so you can shoot Eugene at some point. But where's your basic self-preservation 
to not let the guy tweaking to drive your car, uh, to drive you somewhere. You kind of deserve what you got, Carlo, is how I feel. And, you know, rest in, rest in peace, uh, Joey Maldini. He's very dead now because he went very much through the windshield of the car. Pour one out for Chet Hanks. He's uh, no longer with us in the show. Russell survives. I was happy to see that Russell actually, in fact, survived because this entire thing happens between Eugene and Carlo. And Russell is not moving, right? He's, he's not making a sound. So I had assumed he died, but we get to see him, uh, with the EMT, uh, in the ambulance when Rudy comes on the scene. Um, so that's good. So at least Desire didn't lose another gang member, but we have to play the clip between Eugene and Carlo. Let's take a listen. Fuck me. That's the wrong clip. <laughs> I was like, huh, that's how that starts? <laughs> we can edit that's that funny. out. Let's take that out. <laughs> Leave it. I think it's funny. <laughs> if if was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. That's where I'm at, people. That's where I'm at. I love it. Fuck you. You kill coffee. You beat my brother to death for no fucking reason. Your daddy blew my mama's house up. Kill my whole family. What did we ever do to you, huh? And after all of this, you are trying to fucking kill me? So fuck me? Nah, man. My favorite thing about that clip is that it's so realistically written that when he says, you're trying to fuck me, then me and Eugene together in unison said, nah, man, fuck you. I said it verbatim and I was like, I love it that Eugene has been so well written and so consistently written that I knew exactly what he was going to say. And that felt like perfection. Do you, are you proud of Eugene for walking away? Do you think he should have walked away or you think he should have killed Carlo? He should have killed Carlo. I get he's, he is a sweet kid. He is uncorrupted by this life and he is uncorrupted by the myriad of shit he has been put through, but he needed to pull the trigger there. This is a classic loose end will come back to bite you in the ass. He solves so many problems if he kills Carlo there. And the fact that he did take a shot at Carlo once, right? It's what led to Adam being killed. I know why he didn't. And I know he is the truest, purest human on this show. Like all of our greatest hopes live in Eugene. But man, I really wanted him to kill Carlo there. I don't know that I've wanted a character to be killed more than I wanted Carlo to be killed in that moment. He's just such a, he's just a worthless piece of shit. After he left the baby in the hotel room and, you know, he continued to want to drive around and do all this kind of stuff with Joey, I was reminded of what a piece of shit he was. Right. That's why I said even in the hospital, right? Yeah. Yeah, Because he kind of laid low. He was trying to be, remember what you're saying, is Carlo the only family Fia has? Is he the only one she can really trust? And it was like, huh, am I getting lulled into thinking that Carlo might actually be a better person than he is? Nope. This episode reminded me Carlo is a piece of shit. Right. Exactly. That's what, that's how I led off the hospital conversation 
conversation before where Fia's like, I need an answer about why you left my baby. And everyone else, no one wanted to hear what, what Fia, what Fia is. And though I think she had a really legitimate concern that Carla left the baby with the stranger who the baby's just wailing and screaming when she comes home. And he said that he didn't leave the baby with a stranger. He just left. Yeah, if Angela's not there, he probably still leaves the baby, right? I think he does. And he doesn't, like, he didn't say, you know, like, here's where the bottle is, here's where things are, you know, blah, blah, Like, I mean, he didn't, like, leave the baby with Angela. He left the apartment. He left the he left the room and Angela was standing there. Uh, yeah, you know, he's a horrible piece. Of, and the way that he spins the story of that Eugene tried to kill him and stuff. Like, Dude, you you lulled us. You lulled us into thinking that you had changed, maybe, but you're not. You're 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 just the biggest piece of shit and dumb on top of it that we always thought you were. That's what the true colors were revealed here. And I won't be fooled again. I wish he had pulled the trigger. I understand why he didn't. I understand the role he plays in the show. He's he's the sacrificial lamb for us. But also, I wish I understand why he runs away. But man, I wish he had taken his backpack. All I could think of was, damn, Eugene, if you had just taken your backpack, Rudy doesn't make the connection that you're still alive. Oh, why didn't you just stop and think about that? He just ran. I mean, he still had blood coming out of his nose. He didn't even wipe his nose off. I mean, it was it was bad. I mean, so then get to that when we're actually at the bus. I mean, my heart was racing for Eugene and I did not see that coming. Did no. you? No. I mean, he's only three people away. But when he starts peering kind of just to the right of the camera, I was like, what? What? And then the, the shot rings out. He was only three people away from getting on the bus after waiting and waiting. And he was so smart with the strategy. He hid behind a pillar until it was safe to get on the line and the line was moving to get on the bus. He did everything right. He couldn't have done it any better. And then fucking Rudy with his silencer shoots him from a distance. And Eugene sees it. He sees him get shot. He sees himself get shot. He's staring. He's peering. He sees he must see the, the gun being raised. Now, here's the thing. The, the obvious question is, is Eugene dead? I don't think so, because I looked at okay. it a couple of times. The shot was high up on his shoulder. It, it was like high on his chest, low on his shoulder. Yeah. It was kind of like right where like the joint of your armpit starts. Look about where the shot was. So, so you don't think he's dead? I don't think he's dead. I don't think he's dead. Okay, okay. I don't think his time on the show is done because narratively it also makes sense too for it not to go smoothly, right? For Rudy to shoot someone in public and for it to go to shit also narratively makes sense. But looking at the shot again, because why wouldn't they make it as precise as they could if they're going to kill him in the heart? Or they're definitely going to kill him. You, you shoot him in the head, right? We, how many times we've seen a show? I think we saw us with Jack in 1923. It looks like he gets shot in the heart, but no, he got shot in the shoulder, kind of high on, you know, high on his chest, low on his shoulder. So, no, I, I think I, I freeze framed it a couple of times. I, I think Eugene is at least going to be a, a, some kind of alive at the start of the next episode. If he stays that way, I have no idea. But my, my gut is that he is alive at least when the next episode starts. Well, that is a bold prediction. And I, you know, one that I, I guess I, I'm behind because, you know, we just saw Carlo in a hospital room. I could see seeing Eugene in a hospital room next. I mean, that, that really is the end of the episode. For me, I'm left with five questions. Well, really four questions and one funny question. I already talked about Fia and Father Jay. So I'm not even going to count that one as a final question. <laughs> Here's where I think we are for questions for the next episode, or at least questions now that feel like they need to get answered before the series is over. And again, we only have seven eight nine we only have four hours left of your honor so th there's there's some loose ends that need to get re resolved here is frankie dead 
And if he is, is there going to be Gina Carmine fallout for taking out Frankie? Because remember, Gina relied on Frankie to do her dirty work as much, if not more, than than Jimmy did. So if Frankie is, in fact, dead, I think that's going to be a fucking problem for Gina. Maybe Carmine is Palpatine and cheering Jimmy on for finally getting his hands dirty. I think Jim Gina's going to have a real problem with Frankie being dead. Even if Frankie being incapacitated, hurt as much as he must be at a minimum, I think Gina's going to have a real issue for. Could you imagine we have like one room and it's like Carlo, Frankie and Eugene all in recovery <laughs> in the hospital. <laughs> the New Orleans hospital is going to be busy tonight. So very uh, is Eugene dead? Uh, to me, it looked like a shoulder shot more than a than a heart shot. So I think he's going to start the at least episode uh, part seventeen. I think he's going to at least be alive at the start of that. If he if he remains that way, I don't know. But I, I, my guess is that he is. But it's it's a big thing though because again, he is and not to say heart, but he, you know, he is the heart of the show in a lot of ways because I think he does represent the most uncorrupted, purest character in the show. I think he represents being ethical, like someone with some morals, someone with some values that is tried so hard not to compromise them more than anyone else, even more than Michael, even more than Adam. He tried harder than anyone to try to stay on the straight and narrow. So, right. To, to understand the difference between right and wrong. Which then you hate for that character to ever die because then that kind of makes you feel like it's impossible to stay good. So you kind of want him to stay alive just for that. Yeah, Eugene Eugene alive or Eugene dead represents the hope of good winning over evil in a lot of ways. Which, you know, not to put too much on the character, but it definitely feels like he is a metaphor for the ability for good to win out over evil. You know, think, think back to Carmine. All manner of evil will pass through the city because of you. Eugene is something that, like, keeps that at bay, right? Eugene being in this world feels like something that helps keep that at bay. Will Big Mo face a consequence from Terrence's death, either from inside desire, right? We have to call back to Chris turning his back on her, which maybe just in the moment is it's his little brother and he doesn't want any consoling, but maybe it does mark something bigger, a division, right? He's not fam. He's not blood to Big Mo. His allegiance is only going to go so far versus Little Mo, who is going to have a lot more strings of allegiance to Big Mo. So that is a possible problem for her inside of Desire, but it's also a possible problem from outside of Desire. Charlie made it a uh, a condition of helping her get Grand Rain is that bodies and little kids weren't dying in the lower ninth from drugs. The cops maybe are going to have enough at some point, right? We already saw Big Mo and Rudy having words about how much he's doing for what he's getting paid mm. when they were on the phone, when he had to go yeah, spring sick of that right he had to go spring little mo from jail down in houston you know so that that relationship is already strained now a dead little kid that, that may be a problem it's like the worst case you know possible she didn't want any connections back to desire and now a desire member's little kid brother died like it's the worst person who could have who could have fallen from this yeah and the last question is who gave the order who lured robin to yaya's who lured her to her death I, I doubt we get that next week, but I feel like that has to be a question that gets resolved in the next four hours. Those are excellent questions, Mike. I'm super looking forward to answering them with you guys. You guys, if you guys have any questions for us, please remember that you can reach us anywhere at Pod Clubhouse. Definitely talk to us over on Twitter or Facebook. Come join the Facebook group. We'd love to see you over there. We always love to talk with all the fans and find out what's 
What are you guys thinking? What conspiracy theories are you coming up with? This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. If you wouldn't mind heading to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe while you're there. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star review, if you write something nice for us, we're going to read it on the air and give you all the credit because we appreciate when we hear feedback from you guys. We work really hard on these podcasts. We want you to enjoy them. We want you to get something out of them and we want to interact with you guys. So definitely leave us a five-star review and we will read it on the air. And as an incentive, you know, uh, we'll, uh, I don't know, we'll buy you a club so you have a club to sing in. How about that? We'll we'll buy you a jazz club <laughs> of your own so you have a stage to sing on every night, baby. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.